Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst Glenn Kirchner. As he kicks off the weekend edition of Justice Matters, Glenn takes some time to introduce himself, and it's a backstory that proves that legal reform really is possible. Here's Glenn. Friends, welcome to my new audio podcast, Justice Matters. We'll be posting episodes three times a week, and the weekend episode, which is what you're listening to now, will be a long format chat. You and me, just like we're sitting around a kitchen table, kicking around the legal issues of the day. So friends, what will our long format weekend kitchen table chats look like? Well, we'll start with a legal recap of the past week, the top two or three or four or five stories that broke over the course of the past week on the legal front. We'll talk about what those stories were, what they mean, what they signal moving forward, particularly on the accountability front, on the justice front. Because let's face it, in recent years, call them what they are, in the Trump years, accountability has taken a real hit. And justice, I mean, it seems far off on the horizon, you know, if we can see it at all from where we are presently. Friends, I maintain that one thing is pretty clear. We are all in this mess together. And that's how we're going to get through it. It's the only way we're going to get through it together. So we'll start each weekend chat with a legal recap of the biggest stories of the past week. So part two will almost always involve a discussion of the need for reform reform in some aspect of our government. Criminal justice reform, court reform, police reform, ethics in government reform. (laughs) Reforming ethics in government. Yeah, that's a challenge. That's a heavy lift. It's a huge undertaking. But friends, it can be done. Stay with me here, right? Um, Let me trot out the often heard saying, you know, how do you eat an elephant? That's a big job. Seems like an impossible undertaking. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. How do you reform ethics in our government? One step at a time. One task at a time. It can be done. Significant progress can be made. And I know you're saying, come on, Glenn, you're just blowing smoke. I promise you I'm not. Stay with me here. I want to tell you one story before we get to the legal recap for the week 
about how reform can be accomplished. How do I know it can be accomplished? You know what? I actually took a crack at fixing a problem in our government and lo and behold it worked. So let me tell you a little bit about my background, who I am, and then I want to segue into how I saw a problem in government and I decided I was going to do everything I could to fix it. I also want to tell you a little bit about my background because you're listening to this podcast perhaps thinking to yourself, who is this Glenn character and why should I continue listening to him? Well, maybe this will persuade you, maybe it won't, but let me tell you a little bit about me and my background. Um, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I escaped to New Jersey. I didn't escape far. Uh, I was raised in New Jersey by a father who was um, a high school football coach. The joke I often tell about my pop, it's only sort of partially a joke, is that he coached at and got kicked out of every respectable high school football program in New Jersey. Okay, it's a little bit of an overstatement. He didn't get kicked out of all of them. Um, but he was a kind of rough and tumble, hard living guy. He was a football coach. He was a wrestling coach. He was a boxer. So those are the things I grew up doing. Those are the things I grew up knowing how to do, courtesy of my pop. My mom was a, a fiery little Irish woman who never went to college, but who was smarter than all of us put together. And I've often joked about how I had a very balanced upbringing because I learned all the don'ts from my dad and I learned all the do's from my mom. So all in all, it was a, a pretty balanced upbringing. And I lost my mom and my dad to cancer some years ago and I missed them, you know, only every minute of every day. I call myself a gutter kid from Jersey. Why? Because I'm a gutter kid from Jersey. I was a bit of a troublemaker. I grew up a little bit rough and tumble myself. Ended up graduating from high school, Point Pleasant Borough in the 70s. Went on to college at Washington and Lee University. Then I joined the Army. I served on active duty for six and a half years as an Army JAG, an Army prosecutor. I had an unusual experience in the Army because for pretty much the entirety of my six and a half years on active duty, I was a prosecutor. First, I spent three years prosecuting court-martial cases in Anchorage, Alaska, with a unit that was then called the 6th Infantry Division Arctic Light. Yes, it was cold. Yes, it was dark in the winter and light in the summer, but what a great experience it was serving in Alaska. I then became a government appellate attorney, basically a prosecutor in the appellate courts when soldiers would be convicted and they appealed their court-martial convictions. I would go into the appellate courts and argue why the conviction ought to be affirmed. And I had the wonderful opportunity to handle some really sort of big, meaty, legal appeals uh, in espionage and death penalty cases and others. And after about six and a half years of active duty with the Army, I left the Army, joined the Department of Justice, and ended up spending nearly quarter of a century with the Department of Justice as a federal prosecutor. Specifically, I worked at the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. At the DC U.S. Attorney's Office, I somehow managed to rise to the level of Chief of the Homicide Section, where I supervised 30 federal homicide prosecutors and 
was responsible for overseeing all murder investigations in the grand jury and all murder prosecutions in the court of Washington, D.C. It is a job I look back on and a job that I, I loved and I was honored to, to serve in that position and I learned so much in my time as a homicide prosecutor. And I tell that whole backstory because it now brings me to the problem I saw and the decision I made to try to fix that one problem in government. So 22 of my 30 plus years as a prosecutor, I worked murder cases and I saw that there was a problem in our system and in our nation and it was an unacceptable problem. That problem was and is the fact that we have more than a quarter of a million unsolved homicide cases in the United States. That's more than a quarter of a million families who either literally or at least figuratively sit by a phone every day waiting for a call to come from a detective, from an agent, from an investigator saying, ma'am, sir, we have a break in the investigation of the murder of your loved one, your son, your daughter, your spouse, your partner, your grandparent, your nephew, your aunt, your parent. And those calls never come. Believe me, friends, those calls almost never come. And here's the thing, those quarter of a million families cannot go out and investigate their loved one's murder case on their own. They need the police to do it. And unfortunately, across this great nation, the police are not doing it. I think generally because they don't have the resources to do it. But these are families that are forever drowning in a sea of grief because there's been a lack of accountability, a lack of justice for the murder of their loved one. That was a problem. I prosecuted in Washington, D.C., and we had more than 3,000 unsolved murder cases. It's probably up to 3,500, maybe 4,000 these days. I haven't checked the statistics lately. That's an unacceptable problem. And I was determined when I retired from the Department of Justice to do something about that problem. I retired on June 1st of 2018. I will tell you stories. You're going to get the sense, friends, I like to tell a lot of stories about murder cases I tried and sort of crazy experiences I had as a prosecutor, as an army jag, as a parent of five daughters and one son. I had lots of interesting experiences and, you know, you can't stop me from talking about some of them. I'll try not to get off track too much or too often. but. It was a problem and I decided I was going to try to do something about it. So after retiring from the Department of Justice, I sat down, I put pen to paper and I tried to draft a law. Now, I'm not a legislator. I never tried to draft a law before, but I decided if we have more than a quarter of a million families whose loved ones murder cases are going uninvestigated, something has to be done about it. So I tried to figure out what can be done about it because we do have Crime Victims Rights Acts on the books, not many, but there are a few that gives, give rights, statutory rights, legal rights 
to victims of crime. We have what's called the Crime Victims' Rights Act, often referred to as the Victims' Bill of Rights. We have the Sexual Assault Survivors' Rights Act that gives victims of sexual assault some rights, very modest rights, not enough in my opinion, but some rights. I decided we need a third law on the books to give homicide families rights. Rights to have their loved one's case handled professionally, thoroughly, aggressively, and reinvestigated if the case was sitting in a file cabinet or a storage room, languishing, gathering dust, going uninvestigated. And I had the good fortune to get to know Representative Eric Swalwell, congressman from California, himself a former prosecutor. And I approached him with this idea of giving homicide families some legal rights to have their loved ones case investigated or reinvestigated. Thank goodness he heard me out. He put me together with his legislative director and we worked for years. We worked to bring into existence the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. And now, on the books, federally, there is a law that gives homicide families a right to have their loved one's murder case reviewed and, depending on the results of the review, reinvestigated. And I am thrilled to be able to say that on August 3rd, 2022, President Joe Biden signed into law the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. Friends, if I can do it with the assistance of tons of great people and the willingness of a politician to recognize the problem and put himself out there to try to do something about it, thank you, Representative Swalwell, but if I can do it, you can do it. If a gutter kid from Jersey can do it, anybody can actually have an impact. If you see a problem, you can make a difference. You can find what needs to be reformed and find ways to work toward that reform. So reform in all of the ways that we know are necessary can be accomplished. And friends, they don't all require acts of Congress, as we will discuss in our weekend long-format kitchen table chats. Coming up next, Glenn dives into a review of the top legal stories of the week. This is Justice Matters. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. 
So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What's going on right now in Fulton County, Georgia, should have Donald Trump very, very concerned. Here's Glenn to explain why. Let's get to the legal recap for the past week. And I want to start with what I absolutely believe is the biggest legal story this week. I'm going to say it's about a nine on the legal Richter scale. You know, I I want to say it's an 11, but I don't know, that feels hyperbolic. But it is Fulton County, Georgia, District Attorney Fawny Willis. So I'm sure you know that Fawny Willis, a hardcore, serious, determined, aggressive prosecutor, in Georgia has been investigating the Georgia state election crimes of Donald Trump and his criminal associates, his co-conspirators. And Fonnie Willis was in court this week. Now, let me, let me set it up a little bit. Uh, the backstory is that in Georgia, you have a, what I will call funky, two grand jury system. It's pretty unusual. One grand jury called the regular grand jury has the power and the authority and the ability to indict people, to charge people with felony crimes. But the regular grand jury does not have the power of the subpoena. They can't compel reluctant witnesses, witnesses who do not want to appear and testify before the grand jury. That takes a judge impaneling a special grand jury. And the special grand jury, which was impaneled, at District Attorney Fawny Willis's request has the ability to issue subpoenas and compel the testimony of reluctant or combative witnesses, people who just desperately don't want to testify before the grand jury. Fawny Willis ran 75 of these witnesses, these reluctant witnesses, through that special grand jury, including people like Rudy Giuliani and Mike Flynn and Lindsey Graham, people who desperately did not want to testify about the Georgia state election crimes of Donald Trump. They were so desperate not to testify that all three of those men, I have air quotes around the word men, all three of those men ran to court, said, judge, please don't make me testify in Fawny Willis's special grand jury about what Donald Trump did. And Fawny Willis beat all three of those men in court. In fact, Senator Lindsey Graham ran all the way up to the Supreme Court to try to keep from having to testify about the crimes of Donald Trump. And the Supreme Court and all of the other courts said in substance, shut up, go in the grand jury and testify. I'm paraphrasing. Okay, they didn't say shut up, but that was the message. Get in there and testify. And Mike Flynn, Lindsey Graham, Rudy Giuliani and others were forced to testify. Well, the special grand jury has done its work. And in this funky two grand jury system that Georgia has, and the special grand jury issues a report documenting and cataloging all of the evidence they have amassed, you know, courtesy of the testimony of these 75 reluctant witnesses, and they make recommendations about who should be indicted, if anyone. Now, I believe the prosecutors actually draft the report summarizing the evidence and they present it to the special grand jury and the special grand jury approves it or not. Apparently they approved it and now this report is being taken back to the regular grand jury 
the grand jury in Georgia with the power to indict people, to charge people with felony crimes. But some news organizations filed suit in Georgia State Court trying to get that report released publicly. And this week, there was a hearing in that case. And the district attorney herself, Fawny Willis, appeared in this week's hearing. And here's what she argued. She said, Judge, we oppose the grand jury report being released to the public at this time. Why? Well, here's what she said. She said, because if you release this report publicly, it will interfere with the defendants, plural, multiple times she said defendants, plural. It will interfere with the defendant's right to a fair trial in the future. What was she communicating? Well, you don't become a defendant unless and until you're indicted. So when she said, if you release this report, it will interfere with the defendant's right to a fair trial in the future, she was all but saying, Judge, we're preparing to indict people. And then she said something else. Defendants was my first favorite word. And my second favorite word that DA Fawny Willis said in court this week was, and our charging decisions are imminent, judge. They're coming. So when somebody is serious and determined and accomplished and fearless as Fawny Willis stands up in open court and says, the defendants deserve a right to a fair trial, and if you release this report, it will interfere with that right to a fair trial, and our charging decision regarding these defendants is imminent. She said everything we need to hear. In fact, what we heard in court this week from District Attorney Willis is the most direct and concrete assertion by any prosecutor investigating the crimes of Donald Trump that Donald Trump is about to be indicted. And that, friends, is good news because justice matters. Up next, bad legal news for the far right-wing Oath Keepers involved in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. This is Justice Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The right-wing Oath Keepers and Proud Boys who tried to overturn a legitimate election on January 6, 2021, are finally being held to account. Here's Glenn to explain the latest. You remember the Oath Keepers, the you know, nationalist organization 
that attacked the Capitol on January 6, trying to stop the certification of Joe Biden's win, exactly as their you know, president and deity Donald Trump told them to do. Well, you may recall a couple of months ago, a whole group of Oath Keepers, including the leader of the Oath Keepers organization, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, the guy with the eye patch who shot his own eye out as a firearm safety instructor. No, you can't make that up. Elmer and his co-defendants were convicted by a jury after a seven-week-long trial. I know because I sat through the entirety of that seven-week trial. And they were convicted, the two top Oath Keepers were convicted of seditious conspiracy and all five were convicted of multiple crimes for attacking the Capitol on January 6th. Well, just this week we had part two of the Oath Keepers trial wrap up, four additional Oath Keepers, and boy, after a several week long trial, I didn't attend this one, the jury just banged these Oath Keepers out convicted them of seditious conspiracy and other charges promptly after the jury retired to begin deliberating. So now you have seditious conspiracy convictions. Seditious conspiracy is essentially the attempted violent overthrow of the government. You have seditious conspiracy convictions of multiple Oath Keepers across two separate criminal trials. And of course, friends, the Proud Boys white supremacist nationalist organization. Proud Boys are on trial right now also for seditious conspiracy charges because they were in their own conspiracy to try to violently stop the certification of Joe Biden's election win. And if I had to bet a buck, you will hear me say that one buck is my betting limit. I'm not a high roller, but if I had to bet a buck, I would bet the jury in fairly short order will convict the Proud Boys of seditious conspiracy and other charges as soon as that jury retires to deliberate. So that's good news. It's good news that more and more and more people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th are being held accountable for their crimes. But the news could be better because as of yet, all we have by way of prosecutions are prosecutions of the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th, what I call the boots of the insurrection. And then we have the suits of the insurrection, and that would be Donald Trump and all his criminal associates, his co-conspirators who organized and funded and orchestrated and incited the insurrection. Donald Trump ordered it. He told those people after lying to them about their vote being stolen, their election being rigged, their president being unlawfully taken away from them. He told them, go to the Capitol, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Now go down there and stop the certification of Joe Biden's win. He said, stop the steal. That's helpful from a prosecutor's perspective because everybody knew, including Donald Trump, nothing had been stolen. And what that does is it helps provide evidence of Donald Trump's criminal intent, his corrupt state of mind, his guilty mens rea, as we say. And Donald Trump's foot soldiers and dupes and supporters and lackeys listened to his commands, obeyed his orders, they went to the Capitol and they attacked. The boots of the insurrection are being indicted tried, convicted, and imprisoned, and the suits of the insurrection, Donald Trump, 
Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, Steve Bannon, and on and on and on. The suits of the insurrection, the people of power and influence and privilege, are not being indicted, tried, convicted, and imprisoned. They're out playing golf, going to dinner parties, holding fundraisers, plotting their next attempted overthrow of the government. It's time for the suits of the insurrection to be held accountable. We'll be talking more about that in future episodes. But let me go back to the good news. Another batch of Oath Keepers was convicted this week of seditious conspiracy and other charges. Next, Glenn continues his review of the week's top legal stories with new information about the Durham investigation. This is Justice Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Durham investigation launched by the Trump Justice Department turns out to have been even more suspect than we first thought, plus a new opportunity for reform of the kind of abuses perpetrated by the Trump administration. Here's Glenn with the details. I want to finish up with a third legal recap story, and that is the blockbuster news that recently was reported by the New York Times about the John Durham investigation. You remember that one, friends? Remember how Bob Mueller was assigned special counsel to investigate all things Trump-Russia, all of the many connections between the Trump campaign and Russian officials and Russian individuals. Bob Mueller investigated. He found more than 140 contacts between the Trump campaign and Russian officials and individuals. He also documented pretty meticulously and exhaustively in volume two of the Trump-Russia report, Donald Trump's many obstruction of justice crimes. And Donald Trump didn't like that. And if Donald Trump didn't like it, Donald Trump's corrupt attorney general, Bill Barr, didn't like it. And so Bill Barr decided he would appoint a special counsel to investigate the investigators who investigated Donald Trump. He appointed this guy, John Durham to look into the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation, how it got opened, how it got started. And what I would urge you to do, friends, is read the deep dive piece just reported in the New York Times by investigative journalists Katie Benner 
Adam Goldman and Charlie Savage because they break the Durham investigation wide open. They pull back the curtain and show all the ugliness and the unethical behavior inside the Durham investigation as Bill Barr and Durham went about trying to undermine the Trump-Russia investigation. And they couldn't because it was legitimate, because it was the right thing to do. But the reason I urge you to read it is because it really shows the continued abuse and weaponization of the Department of Justice by Bill Barr at the direction of Donald Trump. And in that New York Times piece, there are so many other <laughs> parade floats in the parade of horribles that was the Durham investigation. For example, there was a former federal prosecutor who left the Department of Justice and then he took on the representation of a couple of witnesses in the Durham investigation. And he said when he met with Durham, with these witnesses, what he saw of Durham's conduct, quote, made his head spin. There is a revelation about Bill Barr, who, when the Inspector General of the Department of Justice issued his report saying the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation were sound, were solid, were appropriate, that investigation should have been opened, Bill Barr put out this information trying to undermine the DOJ Inspector General's conclusions about the Trump-Russia investigation being properly opened, and on and on. There are so many examples, and as I say, I urge you to read that article, and I'm sure there's going to be more coming out in the coming days and weeks about what was going on behind the curtain of the Durham investigation. But here is the one that I think is perhaps most sort of earth-shattering from the perspective of this old career federal prosecutor. There was reporting about how Bill Barr and John Durham were globetrotting, going around the world, asking other countries essentially for dirt on our U.S. intelligence and law enforcement agencies, trying to gin up what was really a false narrative that the Trump-Russia investigation was a conspiracy by deep state U.S intelligence and law enforcement agencies to try to set up Donald Trump wrongfully and undermine his campaign to be president, all of which turned out to be false, a bunch of BS, something Donald Trump wanted to try to prove, but there was no evidence of it. But nevertheless, Bill Barr and John Durham are globetrotting, asking foreign government officials, you have any dirt? on U.S. law enforcement and intelligence agencies that would show that this whole Trump-Russia thing was a fraud. And here's what I found staggering. Some of the officials from the Italian government said, no, we don't have any of that. But you know what we do have? We have evidence of Donald Trump being involved in financial fraud. Whoa. That feels like a big deal. Feels like Bill Barr as the attorney general should have appointed a whole nother team of prosecutors independent from the team that was out there trying to undermine the origins of the Trump-Russia probe should have appointed conflict-free prosecutors to investigate what these Italian government officials just said was Donald Trump's potential financial crimes, financial fraud. But Bill Barr didn't do that. Instead, Bill Barr, maybe with a wink and a nod, I don't know, said to John Durham, uh, why don't you just... Uh, look into that. 
And the reporting is that this was such a apparently grave concern that Barr opened and Durham opened a criminal investigation into the possible financial fraud crimes of Donald Trump that were shared by these Italian government officials. And you know where that criminal probe of Donald Trump went? It went nowhere. It apparently got buried. Never heard anything more about it. Hopefully we will sometime soon. But let me just tell you, friends, the fact that, you know, John Durham, who was looking at Donald Trump as a victim, trying to undermine the opening of the Trump-Russia investigation, for him to then take on an additional unrelated investigation alleging crimes against Donald Trump, crimes that were alleged by the officials of foreign governments, and for Durham to kind of commingle that with the investigation in which he was looking at Donald Trump as a victim, I mean, that just screams disqualifying conflict. That's just not the way law enforcement is supposed to work. Not at the Department of Justice I worked for, or I know, and yet, courtesy of the New York Times reporting, that's precisely what happened. Buried. Hopefully we'll be hearing more about that in the future. All right, friends, there were other legal developments over the course of the past week, but not wanting to overstay my welcome, I'm going to stop there. And let me shift for a minute over to the reform section of uh, our weekend kitchen table chat today. What I want to do is just kind of set up this big reform question, and then I'm going to pick up on it next week. Ethics and government. Yes, some people will say that's an oxymoron. That's an inherently contradictory phrase, ethics in government. And we have good reason to feel that way based on what we have suffered since 2016 in our government, a horrific lack of ethics. But it doesn't have to be that way. There actually can be legitimate reform when it comes to ethics in government. I often say that we need a renaissance of ethics in government now more than ever. And there are ways to do it. There are ways that are doable, ways that are achievable to begin to reform ethics in government. You know, one of the ethical lapses that has become glaringly apparent in the last couple of years is you had all these people inside the Trump administration who, by their own account, saw Donald Trump committing crimes. The reason I say by their own account is because many of these government officials, Trump's government officials, kept to themselves all of Donald Trump's misconduct while they were serving in government. When they left government, what did they do? They wrote books disclosing Donald Trump's misconduct, his corruption, his abuse, and yes, sometimes his crimes. Guys like John Bolton and Mike Pence and others, they sat on Donald Trump's misconduct while they were in government, in the Trump administration, only to disclose it when they left office in their books so they could profit from it. You know, friends, there's actually a law on the books that prevents, that criminalizes what people like Mike Pence and John Bolton did, sitting on crimes that they know about, crimes that are committed by government officials, crimes 
that were committed against the United States of America because they were federal crimes. They violated federal statutes. It's called misprision of a felony. In other words, if you become aware of a crime in violation of the laws of the United States, as many of the Trump officials did, and they sat on it, they hid it, they buried it, they kept it to themselves until they could profit off of it when they left government service. If you become aware of those crimes and you fail to report them to the appropriate federal authorities, in other words, if you hide it, you bury it, you secrete it, which helps the perpetrator continue to get away with the crimes, if you fail to report it, it's called misprision of a felony. You've basically covered up the felony of another. And if that doesn't scream out for some common sense reform, I don't know what does. And there are ways in my estimation that we can make real inroads into reforming the abuses that have been exposed by the Trump administration and the Trump years and the officials who hid Trump's crimes only to disclose them in books and profit from them later. There are ways we can attack it and there are ways we will attack it. And I'm going to take up that specific reform, which, trust me, friends, is imminently doable. No, it's not the panacea. It's not going to cure all our, you know, governmental ethics problems, but it's going to take a big step in that direction. And we're going to talk about that next week when we're back at the kitchen table on Saturday, digging in to the legal recap of the week and then moving on to reforming ethics in government. And friends, if I can take one final minute just to say thank you. Thank you for joining me on this, the first weekend edition of Justice Matters. Um, none of this would be possible without the great folks at Crossover Media Group. Wendy, George, Beowulf, Casey, Ron. I know there are others that I'm missing and I apologize, but what a great team, what a great group of folks who are making this Justice Matters audio podcast possible. My thanks to them. And then finally, my thanks to my wonderful wife, Nilufar, without whom I wouldn't be doing any of this. It's a very interesting and strange professional chapter two that we have embarked on together ever since I retired from the Department of Justice. And uh, I am grateful for having her as my partner in this endeavor and in all things. So, um, so thank you to Nilu, And I will look forward to sitting down at the kitchen table next weekend and talking with you about the legal developments of the week and then digging in, digging in to the need to reform things like ethics in government. Have a great week, friends. Stay safe. Stay tuned. I'll talk with you soon. For more on Glenn, go to Glenn Kirshner 2 on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. This is Justice Matters.